0: Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Schigel, managing partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're talking with James Norman, a serial entrepreneur wearing many hats. He's currently the CEO of Pilotly, partner at Transparent Collective, and general partner at Black Ops Venture Fund. In this episode, we're gonna dive into James' background and talk about how he got to start very early on as a builder and learning how to sell. And the two attributes that really stick out In his story are just that, what it means to be a builder, to be really hands-on, learn the details, and learn to build fast. Second is the power of the network. He's built such a good network over time that gives him access to unique opportunities and unique places. Please enjoy my interview with James Norman. James, welcome to Fast Frontier. It's awesome to have you on the show today.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So we got to know each other through a co-investment we've made recently in a company in Detroit called LiveGistics, Gistics, really interesting construction technology company. So I was really excited to be able to you know bring you on Fast Frontiers and share your story with uh, all the listeners. And uh, you've got a lot of different things going on, so we'll slow it down a little bit and, and get people up to speed on who you are and and the things you're doing. So first of all, let's go back to the beginning. back to where you grew up where you went to school and your story
1: it's a long time ago but uh you know i track it in my mind quite frequently just so i can like remember like what's going on here so you know i'm originally from michigan and was uh born in lansing um grew up around detroit grew up in a lot of places just um i was a kid who like was on airplanes by himself since he was like nine years old so it's just like wow natural to me to just be moving around and not necessarily be at home, Excuse gives me like a certain level of freedom, I guess, to just go where I think the action is. And so, but yeah, when I was younger, I was always trying to find ways to make money because um, my mom didn't have a ton of money. My parents are social workers and her whole thing was just like, well, we can't afford that. And I was like, well, well, if you have a job, then then how do I, how do I do that? Right. And when you're like 10, 11, 12, no one's giving you a job. It's like illegal. Right. So I'm like, you know, selling candy in the schools, doing the usual thing. And then um, we're doing video game tips. That was the thing. I found a bunch of kids with video games. I was like, okay, well, if you want this game, I have this one. You got that one. Like, let's never buy the same game. So we have access to all the games. And then, like, let's rent these things out. It's like our own little blockbuster situation. And we'll sell tips mm-hmm. with it. So, like, we'll do that. My our friend's dad was an actual engineer. He had all the tools to, like, mm-hmm. build anything. Me and my Best friend Martin started building speaker boxes and building speakers and selling those. And uh once we got to high school, we we're starting to get known, you know, in the city for having that for having that type of stuff. You know, I'll never forget, never forget we, we were are in like home homeroom, people are rolling dice, they're doing whatever they're doing. Fernando's doing beats on the table. Like Fernando, man, you gotta buy some speakers. We're trying to sell speakers to all these guys. You know, these guys these, these guys got money for illicit for, 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 for unreasonable reasons, right? right? They're ninth graders with <laughs> money, right? I'm like, you need to buy my speakers. He's like, I won't hear nothing about your home audio speakers no more. I I, I drive cars. I want, I want, I want car audio. And like that was like an eye-opening moment. Like our entire market base, like these people were gonna be driving cars. We need to start selling car audio. So that's kind of where the business really like blew up because car audio at the time in the mid to late nineties was a huge thing. Cars were coming yeah. with terrible sound systems, people wanted high fidelity, it was kind of becoming a bigger business. And so we became like you know next to Crutchfield, one of the you know fastest growing like car audio websites. We sold car audio around the world.
0: Wow! Um, I had I had more speakers than tires. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. I wasn't like
1: super into cars yet. I was only into big speakers in cars. Right. The right. car barely
0: moved. Didn't start half right. the time. But man, did it sound good. <laughs> right. Man, it
1: sounded good. Right. And then uh, I started building whole cars. So one. So at that time, now I'm in the whole cars. Like I'm, I'm working with these Thai guys and. Um, in Ypsilanti, and um, we're building some of the fastest Mazdas, like, in the U.S., and we just emailed Mazda one day, like, look, we got the fastest Mazdas, like, we're on the cover of this magazine, we should be building Mazdas, and we, back came an RFP, and they were like, well, tell us what you do, and so then, being an engineer, you know, I wrote, like, a 40-page document on exactly what's about to happen, and why it's going to work, and who's going to work with it, blah, 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 and back came a car, so this became a thing where people were delivering free cars to my dorm room or to my like yeah. uh, apartment like michael yeah. dell there yeah it was just like okay well free car now what and then so it became a whole thing start traveling to vegas every november for SEMA and delivering the cars mm. and doing all that while still doing school and when i got out ended up moving to la because most of my clients were there right um i was doing cars for honda mazda ford partially all mazda but i was still doing stuff for ford um of course they were in detroit but everybody else was in LA. So moved to LA, got my, uh, one out of two jobs I ever really had, which was um, designing and doing product planning at Mitsubishi. This was like a dream to me. Like I could be at Mitsubishi doing eclipses and bringing the Evo to the U S and all these things. And, uh, and having like some consistent amount of pay that is just, you know, uh, to me, 65 grand that was guaranteed to me for a year was like, well, that's more than the 40 grand I made last year doing all this other stuff. So let me do this. Yeah. Um, but that was like a learning lesson to me. I was like, corporate environment's not for me. Like, these people are not there to win. They're there to um sustain yeah. their job. Like the overarching mission of what's going on wasn't important to them. I'm in the CEO's office like yelling, like, stop doing this, we gotta do this. And and that guy's liking the energy, but his organization isn't <laughs> built for what I'm talking about. You know. There's a time when, um, they were doing fast and furious for there had been a big break between three and four and they hit me up and they were like yo um we know you guys have the new evo which is the product plant product that i was working on and we want that to be the hero card of the movie can you bring it to you know for paul and, and uh, ben diesel to see i was like absolutely but now i had to go to my boss and be like hey i need the evo he's like well you know they don't want they don't want to be involved in those movies anymore because they want to be like green they want to be like toyota i was like this is nonsense like we need this movie. This is free marketing. We don't have marketing dollars. We need this movie. Um, this is why people buy Mitsubishi. This is our, this is our essence. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, I didn't tell you, but you know, I think the keys are somewhere in this room. So, you know, if they haven't disappeared. I guess I don't know where they went. So like, you know, take, take the keys, hop in the car, drive up there, got the car cover, um, took my boss at the time with me. And, um, and then what happened was I covered up the car. Everything's cool. I'm networking. I'm doing the thing. I come back, the car's uncovered. I'm like, what happened? I talked to my boss, he's like, Oh, a couple more people want to see the car. I'm like, that's not the plan. That's like, I brought this up here to see these two people hide it. I'm gonna get back. No one knows what happened. By the time I get back to the office, this joint is all over the blogs. Picture, everything. PR oh. lady in my office, like losing it. And I'm just like, this isn't my fault. Like, you know, anyways, that was the life I was leading. I was like, this is not for me. Um, I need to get out of here. And But all that to be said, ended up leaving there in 2010, because during that time, I started building my first tech company, Yubi. And Yubi was a online channel guide to aggregate all video to one place. So I came to the idea of doing that, I think, because I was in Hollywood, and I um, didn't like the business model of cable TV. So I canceled my cable in 2008 and have been like building solutions in and around that space ever since. But was inspired to do it because my best friend, um, now Joe, who actually works for Pilotly, um, he's went to MIT and his network's different. And so his buddy who was his roommate, Drew was starting Dropbox. And that was like my first point of exposure to Silicon Valley, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was a Y Combinator, he's passing me some articles and the materials from Y Combinator. I'm like, I wanna do this. I started building, and by 2011, I had like a few thousand people watching TV on that platform every day. But I was also not the best CEO. I had the wrong co-founder. I had the wrong hired, you know, the wrong engineers per se. <laughs> I Had to teach myself to code to fill in the gaps. I, and then we had wacko angel investors like that didn't understand what was going on. Like Series A docs on like an angel invested company. I knew the docs were wrong, but I needed the money. I did not right. know, I didn't know what else to do so um all, all that being said, the company began became now, now I know, but at the time didn't quite understand the company became quite uninvestable, right? Mm-hmm. you don't have the right team, you got the wrong docs, like you know you don't have the right story. there's no way just a mess. But I did get in a program called Numi, and that moved me to the bay around two thousand twelve and Numi was backed by Ben and Felicia Horowitz, mich Frida Kport Google, Facebook, et cetera, and that was a house of. Primarily black people, but women, people of color, um, that were all building tech companies. We we were they paid for us to live in that house, and it was a sixteen week program or something like that. And that was like how I got to Silicon Valley, like in earnest, and really understood what's going on.
0: So two 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 attributes that kind of stick out to me as you tell the story is, one from very early you've been a builder, right, hands on in the details. Learn learn fast, uh, but but build. Second is the network. Right? It seems like you you've built such a really good network that's gotten you into some of these places and unique opportunities.
1: Well, the network wasn't quite there yet. Like the network really started when Drew was in Y Combinator and I started seeing that stuff and started tapping more into the MIT network and mm-hmm. seeing what they were doing. That's when I started to understand network a little bit more. I had a crazy network in the car space. Like okay. I could do anything in the car space. I could build free cars for the rest of my life and ate and lived off of that. But it wasn't going to scale the way I wanted to achieve. So I left the car space. I was leaving something big behind. Like I really spent in earnest at that point, 10 years in in automotive space. I've only been like 27, but I worked at GM when I was like in high school. Um, so it was like, it was like leaving a lot to go do something I thought was bigger. And then so I started from scratch with the network. But when I did get in that NUMI program, that closed network apps like rapidly, right? Like, like very quickly. Like Ben Horowitz became a good friend, you know. Um, Mike Seibel, you know, became you know uh, a, a mentor of sorts, like a person, a person who I like, can always ask for good information, and and know it's on point and in line with what's going on in the valley. So, but at that point, like I still didn't understand being. That's a good thing you pointed out. Like I'm heavy on product. I'm heavy on execution. Like. I get in the weeds. I didn't understand, and and, and Drew being a coder, and Drew being a builder and executor, um, one, I didn't understand the purpose of his co-founder. Like, I didn't understand that relationship and what the balance was of what they were doing. I'd always been a solo founder. So understanding what the team brings to the table and then what the CEO um, should be focused on, it took me a long time to figure that part out. Not understanding the storytelling aspect of it. Because I'm coming to you with the pure facts. Like, this is what it does. This is why people want it. This is what we're doing. This is what I think we do next. Not like, you know, the world is tired of being constrained by the cable company. They they have terrible service. You know, the there's there's so many channels I can't find anything. My kids can find things they shouldn't be finding. I want to be able to curate my entertainment experience how I want it. Like, that's a story. That's mm-hmm. different than, like here's the feature that does this. Here's the feature that does that. You would love this. You know, like here's, you know, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Like, yeah, it's not the same conversation.
0: And what you're talking about is a, um, a key attribute that I, I try to find and look for and noticed in, in really good leaders, which is the paradox quotient, right? You can, you can go macro and micro, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes you're so close to the micro, you can't get macro, right? Cause you, you see it, like you said, you, you see all the details. You see all the weeds. But if you start talking to people about all that, you're just, they're just going to get be confused. They're not going to be interested. There's no emotional connection to that. You have to bring it up to the macro and look at the big picture.
1: Yeah. And I think um, the funny part about it is by being involved in Hollywood for long enough, I start to understand the difference between those two. So if I sat there and talked to you technically about you know, a director of photography and how they're setting the color lighting and how everything gets done in this show, you're like, oh, that's interesting. But right. you're not like emotionally bought in. I'm telling the story and you do, you see it. You're like, oh, I want to be a part of that. I want to be, I want to be in that story. The story you mm-hmm. just told me, I wish I could be an extra in that movie.
0: You there know? you go. That's the key right there to the storytelling. Yep.
1: Yeah. So like that's super important. And so like when from there, like now I was in Silicon Valley doing Ubi, like I said, it was uninvestable. And so I would go back and forth to Ben's office trying to find different people I could potentially sell the company to. I built so much technology, and so eventually positioned for an IP acquisition offer by like a small cable service provider. And um, then I stayed in the Bay. And then the, the second job I ever got was to get my wife to move out to Silicon Valley. My now wife; she was not my wife at the time. But she was like, "I know you got a place and everything, but you don't have anything in your place." um before, <laughs> before I started to move, I was sleeping. I was sleeping my air mattresses before <laughs> before the IP acquisition thing. And then I got a place but I'm like nothing in it. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. No, no, no. Like you got to have some sort of employment. Like, so when I went and got a job as a, as a developer, like building video platforms at this company. Right. And that was a big opener for me. So I was like around talent, couldn't get a job at Google. I don't know how to play these Ivy league mind games they play in the, in the, you know, in the interview process, asking me like, how many pencils am I holding? If I have three fingers or whatever it is, like, <laughs> I'm not there for all that. If you ask me to build something, I'll build it. But, uh, I did get a job at this place and it made me realize, like, I'm the best talent they could possibly get to after, like, Google and Apple and, like, Amazon, like, paid a whole bunch of other people way more money who technically have more experience than me as a developer. But I'm definitely very specialized in building video platforms. Like, I'm the best person they could get. And for 90 grand, they're winning. And for me, I'm like, (laughs) cool, whatever. I just need a job, right? You just need Um, a job to get. Right, again, wife, Exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, whatever, dog, that's cool. So it's a win-win. And yeah. uh, in that environment, I was like, I learned a lot about the the development environment, why it was important to build a diverse engineering team from the, from the get go. The people who are working in that particular environment for sure were toxic. You know, like the way they communicated with each other, the way they treated each other um, was out of control. And it made me realize like, if you built a team like this from the start, cause this is what you could afford. And you try to insert other talented people and try to like diversify minds with women or a person of color, they'll never fit because the people who are there have set the tone for what that culture is, and that culture is like abrasive, um, passive-aggressive, and, non- and non-collaborative in some cases. Like if you're coding something a way that I didn't learn in school, the way you're coding is wrong. I'm like, well, that's impossible because mine works and yours doesn't. But we're sitting here battling about the syntax, and I'm like, it will make no sense because yours doesn't work and mine does once that once i got her out here quit that job and started um group flicks which was going to be the first a la carte tv service and speeding through that little couple years it essentially was i knew the game now so i i got my mit and stanford friends together built the whole product got a thousand people signed up in eight days with subscriptions and the last the last mile of it was could i get the content contracts to actually execute on this model and at the time 2014 ish, Google and Apple were both trying to build these types of things. They wanted to build a TV service. No one wanted to work with them because Apple had already upended the entire business model of music and they were like, You're not about to do that TV, so we're not talking mm-hmm. to you. Right? Which is why Apple TV today is them spending their own money building big budget content. It's not like them distributing other people's content. So, anyways, I got those contracts. And there were investors that had told me, like, if you get those contracts, man, we're definitely in on this. But that was actually them just putting up a goalpost that they thought I couldn't kick a kick ball through, and so when I showed back up with those contracts, there was no money to be had. And I was like, at this point, Drew's company's a billion dollars. You know, my boy Jake has started nerve Wallet. Joe, who works for me now, was the first employee at Nerd Wallet. I could have been the second employee at that point. Forget all this. Like, nerve Wallet is going to be worth a billion dollars. um Mike had already pivoted Justin TV to Twitch. That's about to be a billion dollars. I'm around billion-dollar people. Like, I know how this works but I'm not able to get the money. Of course, I could go ask them for some money, but what am I, that's that's only like a half million dollars. So,
0: so just pause on that for a second, because this is something um, that I noticed years ago related to you know, entrepreneurs in the Midwest or outside Silicon Valley, maybe even better said. You're interacting, you have friends that are involved in businesses like this, unicorns, et cetera, and you know them. You know that you're every bit as good as them. And my contention is that makes you more confident to pursue what you want to pursue. Whereas if you if you were just in Michigan, hadn't met any of these folks, you didn't know any of these folks, and been around that, you might not have been inspired or motivated in the same way because you didn't see other people do it that were like you.
1: But well, definitely, that's definitely how I entered into that trajectory. Like definitely that first point of exposure to why combinator, Silicon Valley set that trajectory, and then the constant like involvement with more people gave me more confidence that I could do it. And I was getting closer to it. So because by getting closer to it, I mean, I'm, I got more of these people in my circle, but there became a point after group flicks where it was frustrating. So it was like, now I am seven years into this with all the late, with all the information and the product I know the world wants, but I can't get the capital. So now I'm frustrated because everybody else is getting capital. And so now I'm like, what do I do about this problem? And in that moment, Sprite 2015, I was with my other friend who I grew up with. So I did New Me. Then he was like, New Me. He built his company a year after, came out through New Me and moved out to Silicon Valley. So we've been doing the same trajectory the whole time. And he's a, he's a genius. I'm a builder. I can get things done. I learn fast. He's actually a genius. Like he was in college when we were uh, sophomores in high school. He's at Michigan State. You know what I mean? Like he's literally with it. Um, I was like, if one of us, right i'm the master executor he's one of these geniuses that you want if it, it, what's the balance of it if neither of us are able to get any access to capital there's a huge problem here like it was only two data points but two very key data points um, um with a lot of like frame of reference and so that's when we start transparent collective because we're like collectively our networks are pretty ridiculous but people aren't being transparent with us about what we need to get to the next level so we want to create this transparent collective thing where we impart that knowledge and that network upon other people of color and see what happens. Because people were talking about wanting to invest in people of color, but I don't know where they're at. I don't know how to meet them. Blah, 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 blah. Let's create this mechanism where we're going to bring who we think the best of the best are out. And we're going to like teach them the pitch and put them in front of people, et cetera. And that became a thing and it was pretty successful. So I was doing that. At the same time, I pivoted group flicks to pilotly. I went to all my customers and apologize for negotiating these contracts that I couldn't pay. And then I was like, how do you get data? Because Hulu and Netflix and all the distribution points of today don't deliver data back. Same thing happens in retail um, or like grocery stores, right? Like there was a time where Kroger and Target and Walmart would deliver data back to P&G and Mondelez and all these people. That data is not going back anymore. They're like, no, no, no. I want to learn about what you're doing. and then I'm going to build my own, brand it, put it on the shelf, put it next to yours. And when you run out, you run out
0: right tip the typical playbook of the platform right hey right. Come be on my platform i'll share stuff with you make a business and then
1: at a certain point i'll just take that so myself. that's that's, that's yeah. what's happening i was like you guys can't survive like this like you need to know like what's going on with your, with your content so we do focus groups in burbank orlando and vegas i was like, okay well last people travel there so we can intercept them i was like okay this isn't the 90s though like people's time is way more consumed in the 90s you could catch someone walking down the street not looking at their phone not in a hurry to go somewhere else into modern time that's impossible you will not catch a 15 year old on the street Hmm. in orlando or right taking it in and like oh you want to watch tv show no i'm on my way somewhere i'm on snapchat like or whatever it is like it's impossible so like you're fooling yourself that you're getting accurate data it's the same as it was 20, 30 years ago because everybody said well, we've been doing this way for decades, so we think it works. But if you have something, we if you have something interesting, we'll look at it. I was like, everybody said the same thing. I said, anything that's been used for decades, and there's no explanation for why it works, other than it's been used, it's broken. And so um, that's when Pilot came okay. about. We put an interactive layer on the Cart TV service of GroupFlix, took the people who had signed up and turned them into basically survey respondents, and um, you know, start the business. And Home Depot was the first customer. And that expanded my aperture because I realized it wasn't just pilot TV shows. It was any piece of content where people wanted to understand mm-hmm. the human response. So Home Depot had spent money on a TV series, wanted to understand if that was changing people's perception of their brand and driving intent to go to the store. Now today, I know that as a brand list, mm-hmm. back then it was just like our first customer. We got to figure out what to tell them. And they paid us like five grand to do that. And I was like, if someone just paid me five grand to do this and I barely know what I'm doing. This is a huge opportunity. And so that's how pilotly came about. My boy, Joe had joined group flicks and pilotly just to be the white person from MIT on my team. So once we got in the 500 startups, he left, put his equity back and he moved on to do other things. He came back and joined the company. He rejoined pilotly uh, eight months ago, but he was always like, I don't want to take your resources. I don't want to be in your way. You can build all of this. And then when you need me, when you need to extract yourself from product or take yourself out of a key part of the business, I'll come in and run it. But since then, it's been me and uh, Hector. And um, Hector's my CTO. He, uh, he's first-generation Colombian, you know, grew up in a small little apartment in New York, somehow got himself to Harvard you know, CS degree and uh, was a lead developer at Flickster, exited at the Warner Brothers, and then came and randomly met me and joined me doing piloting. He, uh, he happened to see me pitch group wow. at a tech crunch event and he became a user of GroupFlix. And then ah. when it pivoted, we got randomly connected. He's like, yo, I want to do this. I want to work on this company with you. And I was like, what's your background? And I was like, all right, like, let's do it. And we just like pair code it for like six months and like, well, there we were, you know, got 500 startups and started having a little bit of money to build something.
0: So, so let's shift now to Black Ops and when how that came about.
1: Yeah, so ever since me, I saw what it was like to get an opportunity to get inserted into something, right? Like we didn't get we had a bunch of money out of it or anything, but it definitely put me in a different space mentally and physically. So I always wanted to be able to do something like that, which Transparent Collective kind of was the man, manifesting that. Because by the time I started Pilate League, and we were 500 and all that, you know, we were doing these demo days once, once or twice a year, and it turned into a bigger program. And um, I think by 2020, um, we have, we were responsible for um, 10% of all black founders ever funded. Now the program wasn't just for black founders. It was for women, people of color, but that opened my eyes to a certain fact. I was like, why is it that um, the black founders are so performant coming out of this program? And maybe like dig back into my experience as a founder I was um, experiencing the journey and trying to walk the path of my kind of typical, typical makeup founder, like white, white male Ivy league, kind of like MIT Stanford or whatever. I was trying to follow that path. There are aspects of that path that are important. There's understandings about how Silicon Valley works that are important, but trying to walk anyone's path, but nonetheless, someone who's nothing like you is a fool's errand. And like, I didn't understand that. And then when I started seeing the performance of people coming out of Transparent Collective, a a thing that invests no money in people, I realized it was myself and the people I brought around who have done this before and been on that journey that had a unique lens on, like, just certain things we know that you're going to be good at and certain things you might not be so great at based on where you're coming from and be able to, like, mold them to the space where they need to go. That's when I realized, like, there's a cultural aspect to this that is unseen. Um, just because of how it's traditionally been done, the people who've been traditionally been involved. So like that was that was that was mind-blowing me. So I start looking at things like um how I communicate. Um, how I communicate amongst people I was around was fine. And honestly, like um, I I'm also emboldened by people like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk. You get emboldened by that because you're like, these guys go hard. Like, they say where the hell they want, blah, 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 blah. But the sheer reality of it is, like, at least for me and my 6'4 black male body, if I approach you like Steve Jobs, it's not going to come across as, like, it's not going to come across the same. It just doesn't. Um, it, you know, the, me me presenting in that way came across as threatening. It came across as, like, um, overconfident. It comes across in these different ways. There are these perceptions of the people that people are talking to, and you can't change those perceptions. The only thing you can do is either not deal with them or or adjust the way in which you're delivering information. These are just learnings that you have. It doesn't mean that I'm a a bad person, although I do feel like I've evolved as a person and it has been better for me. But Well,
0: so did Steve Jobs quite a bit. I mean, people didn't like working for him, right? Right. They didn't didn't want to deal with him. Exactly. And he had to go through his own journey to figure out how can I not be such an idiot and get people to actually want to do stuff.
1: And that's the part Um, that's not like sensationalized, right? Like that that person too, before that person died, had to have like an evolution. But in the moment, was still able to carry that through. And so I I just think about like the different things I had to think about that were changing outcomes and could shift perceptions. Because ultimately when you're pitching these investors and have these conversations, the reason, uh, one large reason why um, there's a bias on what's going on, because the person you're talking to really needs to develop a certain level of empathy for you. Like they have to have to understand you with black ops. That's what's important as, as being founders of people who've built many things. Like when we see someone who we know has built something and we can see it's had an effect on a certain set of consumers. And we we understand there's a bigger opportunity. That person might not be verbalizing it in the way that someone else would want to hear it. We know there's a building dollar opportunity. As long as this person seems very capable of building towards that direction and we know the product works, we can get excited about it because we know how hard it is to build something that people love, but just answering your question, like 2020, Transparent was doing well. Uh, my friend Sean Green called me. Sean Green had been in Transparent Collective in the second class, so I know him for a number of years. You know, he's the one who introduced me to like Art Basel and that whole world, and just opening up myself to like new points of creativity. And so like we spend some time together a couple times a year. But he's like, you know what? He called me. and said, we need a fund. We have fun now. You know, I just talked to Joanne Wilson. Joanne's like, this is a this is a catastrophe. Like, they're going to start putting money out here in the market for people of color. And, like, it's going to, some of this stuff's going to get squandered, but you guys need to take advantage of it and, like, go go back, black founders. Like, you know how? And I was just like, well, that's my dream. That's what I want to do. You know, like, when I sell my company, I'll have this money and then I'll go, like, invest in people and it'll be good. Right. He's like, no, 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 we have to do it now. So I'm like, okay. All right. You sure? Now I'm getting pretty deep into this stuff because at the time I'm building this thing called the blackfounderlist.com. I've cataloged every black founder that's ever raised mission capital. So I'm kind of getting into the statistics of it and the opportunity in it. Like looking at the performance of these things, who's matriculating to the next rounds of funding, like statistically, what does it look like for a black founder to get money and given full rounds of funding, what they're able to achieve. The math really shows a huge arbitrage opportunity. So now I'm just like, I'm excited about the moment. Cause I'm like, okay, now someone is going to start figuring this out. But like, I've been thinking about this for years. Like I want to be at the forefront of this. Right. Right. And, um, and so, uh, I wrote this thing called, um, the four challenges, the challenges for venture capital to invest in black founders. And that was in the Harvard business review. And people start reading that and nobody, nobody questioned it. Nobody thought one part of it was false. And that was the best thing I ever wrote in my life. And, and that's why I knew, like, I was, I, I was being called to do this now. Right. I'm a lot about like spiritually where I'm supposed to be directed. And, like, at this moment in time, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and so we started Black Ops. And the first person I called was Ben Horowitz. It's like, Ben. I'm like, hey, man, I'm about to go do X, Y, Z. Um, think you want to get involved and get behind these? He's like, been waiting for a phone call, man. Happy to do so. Like, you know. And so, okay. that's So then you start calling people, whether it be Brad Feld, Fred Wilson, start calling these people. Like, yeah, man, we're in. We're in. We want to help you. And so, um, you know, the forces that be got behind us and we began raising a fund and it wasn't not challenging. Right. Because we're two people running companies as things came to fruition, as we closed in on money, as we brought in people like Bank of America and JP Morgan and all that, um, things start to look more real. And then once we start actually investing, then I think some of the um, some of the concern around what it might be like for someone to be running companies and running a venture firm like this um, start to. Become moot, right? Like we got great deals, things are going well. Still the same people running it, right? So let's keep doing this and take it to the next level. So I yeah, love that successful. you. Did.
0: I love that you didn't wait. That's that's um, you know uh, I had a similar realization when I was doing my startup. Same thing. It's like oh, once I once I hit once I'm successful in a billion dollars, then I'll go do all this other good stuff. And it's like no, no, no. That's yeah. it's, you can start right now if it's important. You do it now.
1: Yeah, it could. Yeah, because it could. Maybe ten years from now, and, and it's just like it could have been done ten years earlier. Like digging into this pool of black founders where I can get on any cap table because people want us involved. Um, and then getting the Series A, guaranteeing them, like basically guaranteeing them where to get your Series A. If you hit your product milestones that we that we agreed upon, we're going to get you to the Series A through our ecosystem where we get you more money. It's going to keep going, and like we just believe that we're doing the good work. On an LP level, where it gets people their returns, we, we believe we can become a top decile fund just in fund one. We're gonna, we're gonna, that's what we're gonna push for. We had to start earlier because we want to see the fruits of our labor while we're alive, right? Like, if we execute on this fund one, fund two, fund three, fund four, and what we do does play out the way we say it does, we're gonna have a significant effect on social equity in this country. And I want to see it happen. Like, I want to, you know, it might be yeah. 70. I might be 80, but I want to see it happen where a black person who's in eighth grade is like, I'm gonna be uh, an engineer, I'm gonna be am gonna be a start founder. And and then has the access to the money because there's a thousand other people or ten thousand other people who've made a million dollars who are putting out checks to people who they think could be the next person who could start the next company, right? Mm-hmm. Like creating that cycle of money and creating that access. I wanna see that happen. And um at that point, you know, that's when Black Ops will become a commonplace fund. Like, you know, w- when that happens, that's when um, Black Ops will open the aperture to like a larger uh, demographic of people and just begin applying our practices across different cultures and and, and doing all that. But for right now... Like, well, at the end of the companies.
0: day, yeah, at the end of the day, you're building, you're investing in real builders, real leaders. Right. And for yes. those people that are builders and leaders, but may look different or, yeah, you know, right, don't, and, don't and, pass and, the and, easy.
1: Right. And the best of the best. I mean, you know, you know, people like, like, um, you know, um, Andre and Turk, these guys, these guys, I look at, I look at them, I was like, these guys are amazing executives. I'd be trying to be executives like them. <laughs> like, yeah, me you know, too. These these are um, the
0: co-founders of Logistics. Yeah. Yeah.
1: These guys are talented. No, I, um, I loved dedicated. them from the get
0: from the get go. They were, I'm just like, wow, these guys know what they're doing.
1: They're buttoned up. You know, if you can find that, if you can, that that's, that's something you're going to get. You go for a black founder, you get someone who's buttoned up can you get someone who's buttoned up and can do the macro and micro man. you're you're in a good you're in a good place you're 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 in a non-losing situation all you can do Mm -hmm. is you know uh, all you can do is uh the worst case scenario is not getting a billion dollars like you can't lose like (laughs) so like that's that's kind of um that's kind of how i see it like there's certain intrinsic advantages and one thing i'll say like i know we're running out of time but like there's, there's, there's advantages to this particular set of people and two key things that stick out. Black people naturally build relationship. It's part of our culture. So like, we'd like to build authentic relationship and our word means a lot to us. It's just part of culture. Um, Probably because over time people didn't have too much. And so the relationships they held with people and the word that they gave them became the most valuable asset. And so like, it's just part of culture. So when I tell you I'm going to do something, it has to get done. If I don't get done, I'm, it's like I'm not a real person. It's like I'm just dis- disassociating myself with said culture. The, the fact that I'm running a company, like even right now I'm running the fund, I could leave my company on the ground. I mean, I could just dip. I don't owe anybody anything. Like, I don't owe anybody anything. But to me, it's part of my identity, and I promised a bunch of people something, and I have to execute on it. Like it mm-hmm. has to win, right? Um, black ops being no different. So now I have like these promises that I have to keep. And so, in the in the case of black founders, you're not in a situation where you can expect someone to start something, and then to leave it when it's not going as good as it could go, because that because that person believes that they've made a certain promise to said investor or whoever's on their company that this is going to win, and they might pivot it around, but we must find an outcome because it's tied to my identity, and that's an advantage to have a founder that that is that tied in. Um, cause it's not all about the money. It's about, it's about their family. It's about the people that's in their company. It's about the culture. It's about showing that people like them can do it. So there's lots of extrinsic factors that are beyond ego and access to money that are driving that connection.
0: And that's, that's the, that's the key thing. That's why I'm so interested in founders and will do anything to kind of help keep the founders engaged in the company. You know, as CEOs, if possible, sometimes they don't care if they're CEO or not. Sometimes it may not be their best skill set, but there's no replacing that founder. The, the, if, the, 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 the amount founder of the amount of skin in the game that they have, you can't can't
1: hire, you for can't that. replace that. And the, and the other thing is, um, you know that 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 relationship aspect plays into the customer acquisition as well. There's reasoning around uh, why black culture drives American culture because it's unique and creative, but also people. People want to have those authentic relationships when they're when they're your customers. So like like I've literally been talking to my customers while I'm getting married. Like and they're like, oh, you know, congrats to you guys. Let me talk to your wife. Blah blah. blah. Or like you send me a card, or I send I'll send them a card. Like there's an authentic relationship there that kind of goes beyond um, the product offering. The product offering, of course, has to be great. But mm-hmm. when you layer that on top, you have something that is just different than what everybody else is offering. And that's something that is just going to come more natural to black founders than, than other people based on how we how we carry ourselves amongst our culture and how we and how we like to execute. So there's just those are two big advantages to me um, that just increase my confidence when I find the right person that we can create an outcome. So look, we're super excited, you know, for the now we're about to have seventh seven company we're going to do. We're, we're super excited to have the companies we have in the portfolio. We have a couple outcomes coming down the pipeline, I feel like, over the next twenty four months, because we invested in a couple of later stage companies so we could get a couple markups. But uh ultimately, you know, we're just excited to keep doing this work and um hopefully be able to invest in about twenty to twenty six companies in the first fund and and uh start changing the landscape.
0: Nice. Well, congrats on all the progress so far. You're doing a fantastic job. I think this time, the market that we're in now is even better for you for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, Yeah, 100%. They always ask
1: me, like, what was going on with the market? I'm like, well, these people never Uh, had high valuations, never had capital. So guess who's winning now? (laughs) Right, right. The inexpensive. (laughs) Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I look forward to doing more, more investments with you. And I think I was going to ask you, you know, parting words to entrepreneurs uh, as an investor, but I think you gave the best commercial possible by just, you know, sharing the culture and your vision with black ops and and how you think as an entrepreneur so thanks for doing that
1: yeah man no problem and yeah i think i think the only parting words are like build, build your culture early in your company because it's yep. gonna matter like everybody says that but like exp, like you will not you know it'll be exponentially more challenging to do it as you add each person hi
0: right, james thanks for coming on fast frontiers and best of luck with everything you're doing
1: thanks great to see you and hopefully i'll uh, see you in ohio soon
0: Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Dan Kremens, former private equity investor and CEO, current PE advisor and best-selling author of Winning Moves, 105 Proven Ways to Create Value in Private Equity-Backed Companies. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio. And our podcast platform is Casted.